often try and um, say, I, I get it. I get what Stephen's going through because of the debates that go on in our nation politically, uh, because of the trends in the West around uh, kind of the left ideologies. We can try and say, you know, we face persecution, and maybe we do mildly, but Stephen was literally getting stoned, uh, and that's not drug-induced. He was getting hit with small rocks because of his faith in Jesus Christ. And I might get uh, hit with words, but no one is trying to kill me in Perth because I believe in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. Um, so there's a, there's a very particular kind of persecution happening here, and it is happening around the world, uh, but, but nevertheless, we're still going to look at uh, suffering in a way. So let me pray for us, and then we'll get into this text. Lord, I pray that you'd help us, that as we look through your word, um, you'd help us by your spirit to hear your word, to be encouraged by your word, for your word to land upon our hearts. Jesus, I'm terrified of being hearers of the word, but ignorers of it. Um, we hear so much, whether it be through news or social media or work or school. Knowledge is bombarding us all the time. And there's a great fear that your word will just become part of the pool of knowledge, weighed up against all philosophies and ideologies, and rather than letting it be the word of our wonderful Father, who is overall the holder of truth. So please, by your Holy Spirit, help to speak to our hearts. Help to go deeper than our math teachers can go. Help to go deeper than our geography teachers can go, or... Help to go deeper than Ben Shapiro can go on YouTube. Whatever book we're reading, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would help to put truth in our hearts and to encourage us in our faith. And if there's anyone here today who doesn't know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, would you comfort them? And would you open up their eyes to the wonder and beauty of who Jesus is and what he's done for them? In your precious and wonderful name. Amen. Um, so we're going to come at this from a little bit of a back door. As I mentioned, you know, Stephen is talking over here. We've picked up at the end of his speech, so we don't know who the you is that, that is going on. This is Stephen. He's a regular disciple. He's not one of the apostles. If you go back one chapter, the way Stephen kind of got sucked into uh, the Bible is that the apostles were trying to do less hands-on ministry and more word ministry, preaching of the word and prayer. And so they were saying, we need some some people who can do the hands-on ministry, because this church is dividing. There were some widows that were getting fed and some widows that weren't getting fed, and it was kind of ethnically or nationalistically driven. And they were like, man, we need some people full of wisdom and full of the Holy Spirit who will be able to work out a plan to make sure that this church stays united, that all the widows get fed. And so who can do that? It's very hands-on, but it's very spiritual. Um, we need the Holy Spirit to help us with this practical assignment. And Stephen was one of those that the community put forth and said, oh, yeah, there's this guy named Stephen and, and six others or whatever that, uh, who's full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. He can do it. He's your man. And um, him and others. So he got pulled in and we start to hear his story. Now he's, he's, he's talking before the Sanhedrin, the, the religious elite. He's uh, told them, he's given them a whole sermon of the history of Jesus and what he's done for them. Now, remember when Peter preached, the, remember when Peter, the Holy Spirit fell, and people heard all the tongues in, in Acts 2, so a few chapters before, then Peter got up and he gave a whole history of the gospel, what Jesus has done for you. And it says people were um, pierced to the heart, and they said, how might we be saved? So Stephen gives his whole speech, and he might think, 
yeah, I know how this goes. Remember what happened to Peter? And he's full of the Spirit. He gives the same speech, and it says, they were enraged in the heart and sought to kill him. So you can't really decide how people respond to the gospel. We have 3,000 people getting saved. We have uh, Stephen getting killed. Same gospel, same message, both getting to the heart, but there's different responses when it gets there. Um, And we're going to look at that just a little bit. Standing there, we find this guy named, this young guy named Saul, and he's probably part of the Sanhedrin. He's probably part of this Jewish uh, elite, this religious elite. And so he's standing there, and uh, certainly he's a pupil of Gamaliel, the great rabbi. And um, they, the crowd is, or the, the, the people who are going to stone Stephen are taking off their overcoats uh, because they're going to stone. It's inappropriate. There's a certain way in which you uh, stone other people, uh, and you have to get appropriately dressed. So they take off their overcoats, and they lay it at Saul's feet, and then they go about and they go and kill Stephen. <coughs> and, and we find Paul. Then later on, you know, Paul is this... He's giving permission for Stephen to be stoned. He's, in, he's uh, endorsing it. He likes what's happening. He persecutes the church. Then we find uh, Paul later on. He has this revelation of Jesus, this bright light that shines brightly, uh, blinds him. He has to go uh, to someone who prays for him in the name of Jesus, and he's healed, and he gets taught the gospel. He gets delivered the gospel by Jesus, and, and Paul becomes the great apostle who's written most of the New Testament. So this guy... I keep switching his name between Saul and Paul. In uh, his Jewish name, Saul, his uh, Greek name, Paul, um, becomes the most famous to us apostle. He was standing right there watching Stephen endorsing. Stephen gets killed. Um, that's where he's at. And it's remarkable to think, even in, uh, towards the end of Acts, when Paul gives his defense for the gospel and what he's doing and who he was and how God has transformed his life, He actually says, you know, that as God was calling me to this ministry, I argued with God and said, don't you remember, I was the one standing as your servant Stephen was being stoned. It stayed with him for years and years and years. How Paul understood grace was because he remembered where he was standing when Stephen was stoned and what he was doing and how he felt and the thumbs up he was giving giving from his position of authority. And he couldn't believe where God had taken him. So how does Paul understand grace? You think of how he writes to the Galatians, you know, like who has bewitched you? How could you have turned from the gospel and gone back to legalism? And we'll look at that a little bit. Where does Paul get this revelation? Oh, it must be directly from Jesus when that bright light comes. Yeah, no. Paul had a practical understanding of the grace of God because he knew who he was and he knew how God had chosen to use him. And that Stephen moment changed him forever. There was something happening in that Stephen moment. And what's interesting in the book of Acts here is Luke changes. The whole of the Acts so far has been really about the Jewish people to Acts 7. And at this point, as he brings Paul into the story with Stephen, the rest of the book is about God reaching the nations of the world, the Gentiles. The story goes, it changes chapters and goes on with Paul. It's a moment in, in, in salvation history changes forever. Paul is standing there under the grace of God, giving permission for Stephen to be stoned not having a clue what God is busy preparing him for. Uh, it gives us courage, because if you've ever met anyone that is unlikely to get saved, um, Paul is, is them. He, Paul was the least likely person to get saved, and look how God used him. Um, how wonderful that is. So we're going to look at three things this morning. Uh, a life that resists the Spirit. What does it look like? 
a life that is full of the Holy Spirit, what does that look like? And then a necessary vision of beauty and grace, greatness. <laughs> so firstly, a life that resists the Spirit. And there's like 25 slides, so good luck, Brian. If he falls behind, don't worry about it. It's highly unlikely that we'll uh, match this morning. But let's see how we go. So Stephen gives his speech in defense of the gospel. And by doing so, you can go read it. It's the whole of chapter 7. By doing so, he... Um, condemns the religious elites. And, and I'll tell you, he gives them five insults. Now, you know, the, the gospel um, pulls us back in line, right? It causes us to be gracious to our enemies, right? And it's like there's not a lot of opportunities you have when you, when you are a believer in Jesus and when you're a follower of Jesus. There's not a lot of opportunities you have to insult people. But if you really are looking for one and you're that kind of person, you're like, man, I just, I just need, I can't do it at work. I'm a Christian, and, and I can't do it there. I can't do it at school. You know, I'm trying to be a light to the school. I shouldn't really, like, lose it with the teachers or my fellow uh, classmates. I can't do it in my neighborhood. You know, I'm trying to be a light for Jesus. And, well, where can you just go and be insulting? There is a place. There is a special place that still exists today. And that's with the religious elite. Uh, those are with those systems of religion that try to tell people how they might be saved that are apart from Jesus Christ that are without grace. And we see that because Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, is incredibly insulting. Right here. Uh, full of the Holy Spirit and grace, and yet it doesn't sound very gracious. There's five insults. Uh, would you call this kind of person abounding in grace? He says, you are hard-hearted. When's the last time you went to someone in the church and said, you, hard-hearted so-and-so? That wouldn't be a gracious way of confronting one another, right? But there, it is okay to go to a religious person and say, hey man, you're really hard-hearted. Stephen says you're hard-hearted. He says, um, number two, he says, so he calls them stiff-necked. That's a little bit more insulting. You know why it's so insulting to them? Because the, that phrase, stiff-necked, they would have studied that over and over and over and over as they memorized their Old Testament and saw God calling the Israelites stiff-necked over and over and over. It was God's way of saying to them, whatever I do for you is besides you because you are stiff-necked. You don't know how to follow me. You don't listen, but I am a good God and what I do will be nothing to do with your goodness because you are stiff-necked. You never learn. And so Stephen comes and he goes, hey, that thing that you've been memorizing, you're the stiff-necked ones. You're not listening to God. You're not paying attention. The prophets have spoken for, you for hundreds of years about the Messiah coming, and you weren't listening. Stiff-necked. Number two. He says, you're uncircumcised in heart and ears. Now, to us, that doesn't mean anything, because who wants to have their hearts and ears circumcised? But to them, it meant everything. So, because that, that was their covenant, circumcision was their covenant symbol, and God had promised to put, give them a new heart by the Spirit. And so the circumcision of the heart meant that their hearts had been changed and circumcised to be believing hearts, and ears were to be believing ears, that they've heard what God has said, and they've responded, and in their, in their hearts they've believed His Word. And Stephen says, you're uncircumcised of hearts and, and ears. You don't believe this God that you are uh, elite, you know, you're, you're representing as the religious elites. You're unbelievers. Number three insult. He says, you always resist the Holy Spirit. You know, that's insulting enough. I don't have to ex explain it. Then he says, number four, you have betrayed and murdered the righteous ones. 
Now remember, these are the religious elites who hold to the Ten Commandments plus the 600 others, plus the 2,000 others that were created just to stay well within the Ten. And one of the Ten is you do not murder. And, and Stephen's saying, not only did you not pay attention to the prophets who said the righteous one was coming, but when he came, you didn't even recognize him, but instead you murdered him on the cross. You're responsible for his death. The righteous one which you have all read about, you killed him. Whoa, Stephen is not trying to make friends. Number five, he says, uh, Therefore, you are not the law keepers you pretend to be. So imagine coming to one of your pastors and saying, uh, You are, I've listened to your preaching, I've watched your life, and I can conclude that you are a hard-hearted, unbelieving, Holy Spirit-defying, murderous hypocrite. Whew. That's what Stephen's telling these people. And today in Perth, you know, it doesn't look like the Jewish religious elite in our homes, in our workplaces, in our lives, but it does, it still exists. We still can be hard-hearted, unbelieving, Holy Spirit-defying, murderous hypocrites. How? Well, there's two ways, and this is a life without, that resists the Holy Spirit. There's two ways. In both these ways, we, we, we kind of symbolically murder Jesus. This is one of the insults, and we put Jesus back on the cross. And let me show you how. The first way is uh, through legalism. The first way is through the law. And in this way, we're kind of saying, Jesus is not enough. I must do something to save myself. Jesus paid it all, but I need to pay it off. Jesus did a lot, but I need to prove it. And... Um, you know, you see this in a few ways. You see uh, the Galatians, Paul says, You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? You began in the Spirit, or are you going to finish by human effort? And Paul's advice to them then is, keep in, the, keep in step with the Spirit. You've, you've gone out of step with the Spirit. You're not walking a Christian life full of the Spirit. You've, you've become full of the law and legalism and rules. You've left how you got saved. Get back to keeping with the Spirit. Michael Eaton had that great phrase, while you're still alive, if you walk with the Spirit intentionally, you'll fulfill the law accidentally. Don't focus on the law. Focus on the Spirit. It's the Spirit of God. He'll make you like Jesus. You'll accidentally fulfill the law. When you try and fulfill the law, you'll find that it's impossible to do. So how does this look like for us? Well, does any of this sound familiar to you? It does to me, so maybe I'm just speaking from my own experience. When we or others experience difficulty and we think it's because we or they did something wrong, have you ever had that fear? Maybe I'm being punished. Or maybe they're being punished. Isn't that, sometimes that's quite a nice thought, right? When someone's living a life that we don't particularly like, it's kind of a comforting thought to think God might just be punishing them. None of you seem to know what I'm talking about, so maybe I'm the only one that has original sin in my life. <laughs> when we or others are blessed and we think it is a reward for our or their goodness. Have you, have you ever thought that? God's really blessing us because we have been generous. I mean, that's how the faith, that's how the kind of health, wealth, prosperity gospel works, right? If you give to God, God will give to you more. That's legalism. So God's waiting. You make the first move, and then He'll respond. Obviously, there's a downside to that. When, uh, when obedience to God 
is obedience to a rule rather than out of a loving relationship. So you're doing the right things, but not because you love God, just because it's the right thing to do. Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commands. That's the, he didn't have to say that if you love me, if he didn't mean it. He could have just said, keep my commands. He's Jesus. But he keeps commands where they ought to be. They come out of, keep, the keeping comes out of the loving. I've got four children. I know that I can make them do what they have to do. Because we can, you know, none of them have, they're not, they're not, they don't, have, they don't have their own incomes. They're not paying their own rents. They're not buying their own food. So we can kind of threaten them uh, with homelessness, <laughs> hunger, all sorts of things. In other words, we could manipulate them by law to do what we want them to do. Or we can try and motivate them by love, knowing that they love us, but knowing that they're also wrestling between their selfish love and us-oriented love and giving them grace to figure that out, but to keep drawing them towards this is kind of a vision we see. This is what we'd love for you. This is what we want to walk you towards. But you're going to have to choose it out of love. Can we walk with you? When we others do the right thing, while there is no real desire to honor God, Jesus said, you are my friends if you do what I command. So when there's no desire for friendship, we don't really care about relationship with God. That's not what we just... We, we, what our reward is being... Religiously elite. Being better. That's the reward. Not being friends with God. You know, I've got a number of friends in this church. So the reward isn't a friendship with someone. The reward is outclassing the rest. Or doing what's right. You know, I want to take you for coffee. Not because you like coffee and you're my friend and it's just so good to be in friendship with you but because then I can tell a story about how I bought someone a coffee and that story can go on for years and years and years. I can milk that story. That, you see the difference of a reward? I've done what God commanded. I've obeyed Him. I go to bed tonight. Oh, I fall my head on my pillow. It's got nothing to do with relationship with God. At least I can say, I'm good. I've done the right thing. I said something wrong. Someone's laughing at me, I feel. When we or others create rules within rules and we treat them as if God, they are God-given burdens. And this is a super like, charismatic thing to do. And we have enough of, enough of us are enough charismatic enough to do this regularly, potentially, in our lives. So you ignore God's law and you substitute it with your own traditions. This is what Jesus condemns them. You ignore God's law and you substitute it with your own traditions. Have, you know, th this is what's in danger. This isn't always true, but there's a danger of this when we start saying... You know, God has told me I can do this. God has told me I can't do this. There's a danger that we're keeping to our own tradition that's a law within a law, and it's, it's out of line with the freedom that we have in Christ. And it just needs to be thought about, prayed about, checked in. That's legalism. So in other words, our sense of goodness comes from our own assessment of our goodness. Why are we righteous? Because I've assessed my life and I've done what I think is you need to do to be righteous. There's a legalism there. Or you assess your life and you're out of line. That's still legalism. You're, you're, you're kind of God in your life, right? Um, so the reason, you know, why is self-righteousness so murderous? Self-righteousness is so murderous because it silences Jesus. It doesn't let His words speak 
life over us. It silences him. It says, you haven't done enough. I've got to fill in the gaps. So here, for example, listen to some of the things that Jesus has said. Do not worry about or be anxious about your life. Your Father will care for you. So, so anxiety or worry comes into our lives. That you know, Who's experienced anxiety or worry? Just raise your hand. There's a few of us. You know, I, I used to regularly wake up most nights. Like, <gasps> heart racing, anxious about things I didn't even know I was thinking about. We experience it. It's what do we do then? Do we let the word of Jesus wash over our hearts? Do we believe what Jesus says? Your father will care for you? Or do we then go, no, I have to care for me. I've got to fix this. I've got to solve it. Or, God, I feel this anxiety. I feel this worry. I'm, I cannot solve it. You have said my father will care for me. Help me to lay it at his feet. Jesus says, don't be anxious for anything. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God your needs and thank Him for all He has done. And you'll experience the peace of God, which is greater than anything we can ever understand. His peace will cover your heart and mind as you live for Jesus. This is Paul's counsel to the Philippians. Here's what to do. He recognizes you're going to experience some worries and strife in life. Here's what you do. Pray to God. Thank Him for everything He's done. Know that He's going to supply all your needs. He's going to come through. And then you'll experience the peace of God which transcends all understanding. How does it transcend understanding? Because you have no right to have that kind of peace except for the fact that you believe something that's out of your control. What is that? That God's going to come through. He hasn't filled your wallet, changed your situation, made everything better. That's a peace that has understanding. The situation's changed. I don't have to worry about it. It's a peace that transcends understanding. This is a peace from heaven, not circumstances. Because I believe what Jesus has said. I believe what God has said. There is no condemnation for those who own Jesus. Therefore, no shame either. The power of of the life-giving Spirit has freed you from the power of sin that leads to death. So when we mope around in our own guilt and shame, what we're saying is, I don't believe, my heart's saying, I don't believe that Jesus has totally freed me. I need to feel bad enough first. I need to carry this enough first. But Paul says to the Romans, no, in Jesus you have been totally freed, not because you deserve it, not if you feel bad enough for five minutes. You need to know that your feeling of badness, your shame, your guilt does not help Jesus save you. If anything, it gets in the way. For freedom's sake, Christ has set you free. As, um, and there's a bunch of verses. But all I'm trying to show is that we can so easily silence. Jesus says, my yoke is easy, but my burden is light. Imagine taking that into spiritual practices. Jesus says, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. And we go, no, unless I read, the chapter, unless I read my Bible an hour a day, then you know, I'm, not, I'm not moving forward in my faith. Does that sound like an easy and burdenless yoke? Maybe. For some it is. For some in this room, that sounds like heaven. Good. Then you should pursue that. We have to find the avenues of God's grace in our life. Where is the Holy Spirit leading us uh, to walk with Jesus, to know Jesus? But knowing all the time, while it will require self-discipline, the fruit of the Spirit is self-discipline, Jesus' yoke is easy and His burden is light. He doesn't whip us as we walk with Him. He doesn't go, I've carried this for 2,000 years, now you carry it for five minutes. He constantly lifts our burdens as He calls us to walk with Him by the Holy Spirit. He constantly, Mark, you put that thing on again, take it off. 
I paid it all. Is walking with Jesus, can you say, his yoke is easy, his burden is light. The yoke is that thing that went on the oxen that they pulled. Can you say, the thing that Jesus has put on me to walk with him, it's, it's easy, and the burden that I'm carrying, it's light. Because that's what he wants to give you. That's what Jesus has, has promised us. Not a promise that's like, if you do enough, that's where you get to one day. A promise as in, the moment you begin to walk with me, from then on, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So there's so many ways that we can silence Jesus and we can be tempted to be hard-hearted, unbelieving, Holy Spirit-defying, murderous hypocrites. We say, Jesus paid it all, but I paid it off. And that makes us so proud. So this is the way of the law. The second way that we can be uh, murderous towards Jesus or silence, uh, silence the promises of Jesus is we can go the opposite direction and we can depart from the law completely. If the law says, you know, you have to do enough to be good enough, then uh, licentiousness says you don't have to do anything at all. It doesn't matter what you do. And that's the other way that we swing. But let's just think about what Jesus said. He said, if you love me, keep my commands. So, you know, he could have just said, love me. But he didn't just leave it at, love me. He went, love me and keep my commands. Uh, This is not an equal relationship. I am your Lord. I am your king. I am your, uh, your leader. I, am, uh, the, I have the name over all names. I have saved you. I have authority over all things. I know truth. I am truth. He's allowed to say, keep my commands. There's no better command to keep than his. If you're not keeping his commands, you're keeping someone else's commands or your own commands, and they pale in comparison to value and goodness to his commands. So whose commands do you want to keep? It's a very good thing that he says, keep my commands. If he said, if you love me, do what you want, he would be a very bad savior. Jesus says, you are my friends if you do what I command. He goes, you know, friendship with me doesn't mean you do whatever you want. Friendship with me doesn't mean, you know, just like run in whatever direction you want. And because I'm this kind of uh, Labrador friend, I'll just come panting after you. It's like, hey, You have a relationship with me. Walk with me. Do as I do. There's no threat here. There's a call. There's a longing. There's a desire. Desire. I mean, who on earth could have imagined that Jesus would have invited us to friendship, but he's saying, hey, friendship looks like something. We do what's right in our own eyes. So in Judges, it says, in those days, Israel had no king. That was the context. There was no king, so all the people did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. So who was supposed to tell them what to do? We have no king. I'm just going to do what I think is right. Then we read in Revelations, the the picture that John has, um, these will wage war against the Lamb, and the Lamb will overcome them because He is the Lord of lords and the King of kings. So there is a king. It's Jesus. He's the King of kings. And those who are with Him are called and chosen and faithful. So there's two, you know, you can have no king and live as you want, or you can have the king of kings and you can be faithful to him. You can't live as you want. So that kind of, okay, so we can't, then we think, oh, so I'm supposed to be a legalist again. 
and do all the commandments? No. Okay, so it's okay to do what I want. No. And so Michael Eaton said, if you're not accused of preaching legalism, you're not preaching grace. And if you're not accused of preaching antinomianism, you're not preaching holiness. Uh, sorry, the other way around. Exactly the other way. I don't want to say it again. Just the other way around. <laughs> so the congregation should be completely confused. Like, I thought you told me I don't have to do anything, but now you're telling me I have to do everything. It's, I sound confused. It sounds confusing. There's a holy standard. You need to know the grace of God. It's, the grace of God is way better than you can imagine. But the holiness of God has never changed. His righteous standard is exactly the same. So how do we do it? Let's look at a life full of the Spirit. If a life that resists the Spirit is hard-hearted, which means we're not open to God's will and ways, if it's unbelieving, which means we don't believe God's truth, if it's a Holy Spirit-defying, which means we're not led to freedom towards godliness, if it's murderous, which means we silence Jesus' claim and His call to follow Him, if it's uh, lying, which means we confess something with our mouths, but we deny it by our lifestyle, then what is, a spirit, what is a life that's full of the Spirit? And that's what we see in our... Actually, that's what we see in our verses today. Number one, it lives with a settled conviction. So being full of the Holy Spirit means being empowered to stand for Jesus even in suffering. This is how we find uh, Stephen. At the face of those who want to take his life, raging. I mean, we, we can't, we, in our community group, we couldn't properly figure out what Luke was describing, that their teeth were grinding in rage. What is that? Are they like... Are they... But Luke's like putting this picture together that's hard to... In other words, so, their rage is so visceral and visible and it's, you know, that he's just like they're grinding their teeth in rage at him. This is not a pleasant scene, but, but, but Stephen has a settled confidence to stand for Jesus in the face of this incredibly intense environment. And he has this, I think, because of the life that Jesus lived. Jesus lived this life where he stood by truth come hell or high water. Jesus bowed to no one. Jesus had, had no need for anyone to approve of him. He spoke the truth. He preached the kingdom regardless of how he was treated. He was always in control. And as the same spirit that enabled Jesus in his life comes and fills us to stand for Jesus in our life, this Holy Spirit confidence comes to stand for Christ. That doesn't diminish people. That doesn't dislike people. What's Stephen doing? He's preaching the gospel. Paul's going to become an apostle. You know, he's giving them truth. It's, it's, you know, there's a desire for their goodness. But there's a settled confidence. I don't need your approval. I, I don't need the atmosphere to calm down. I know who I am in Christ. And this message, this light needs to get out into the world. Don't try to do it without being full of the Spirit. You see that in the city, that there's a legalism. In the city, around people running around, yelling at other people to get saved, to turn or burn. It's so unattractive, so discouraging. People just walk the other way. It's, it's nothing like Christ. That's not a settled confidence. That's a legalistic burden to prove that you're some sort of courageous Christian. Number two, a life full of the Spirit faces injustice with grace and faith. This is possible because 
Jesus was unjustly crucified. But even on the cross, he called out for his murderer's forgiveness. He didn't deserve his murder. He, didn't, uh, he wasn't guilty of what they killed him for. He gets injustice. If you face injustice and you're like, no one understands. Maybe no one around you understands, but Jesus understands. There's nothing you can face that Jesus doesn't understand. He gets it. You face injustice, you get overlooked, being a Christian leaves you out. He gets it. You have a Savior that gets it. Number three, a life full of the Spirit is a life of prayer. When we walk with the Holy Spirit, full of the Holy Spirit, we're not without our need for God. When we're full of the Holy Spirit, we're, we're like fully aware of our constant need for God. So as we live lives full of the Spirit, lives of prayer overflow. Prayer is like an overflow of your knowledge of your need for God. What do you, what do, you do if you need something and Dad's around? You ask Him for it. That's what we call prayer. What do you do if you see something that you want to change and Dad's around? That can, you ask Him to change it. That's what we call prayer. On the cross, Jesus prayed. Even on the cross, even in his, in his pain, in His crucifixion, He still prays out to the Father. He still cries out in prayer. Still on the cross, the Messiah is in need of the Father. There's no situation where prayer won't help you. Where prayer isn't how the Holy Spirit leads you. Fullness of the Spirit means depending on God. Number four, fullness of the Spirit is a submitted life. Stephen's getting killed and he commits his spirit into the Lord's hands. Isn't it amazing how, how much what happens to Stephen mirrors what happened to Jesus? It's remarkable. You could do a whole talk just about the similarities between the way Jesus died and Stephen died and what the Holy Spirit did in that and how people got saved through that. And it's kind of obvious that followers of Jesus will walk in the path of Jesus. Jesus on the cross commits his spirit to the Father, and Stephen, falling to the ground, commits his spirit to the Father. He submits his life. He doesn't try to get out of it. He doesn't try to make a claim of his citizenship. He doesn't try to argue or say, what's your defense for this? No one has given permission for this stoning in terms of like a legal system. It's outside of the legal system. This is havoc. This is chaos. This is an overflow of rage and chaos. And he doesn't try and calm it down or talk his way out. Or, or get, I remember once getting in a fight accidentally. I insulted someone and they, uh, at a house party they came and they had their hand in their, in their jacket and they were like, all right, we're going to fight. You know, this is what you said and uh, you, you first. And I'm like, I don't know what's in his jacket. I'm, not, I'm definitely doing a fight with this person. I mean, I'm sure he's not just going to pull his hand out. Um, <laughs> And my friend who was with me is going like, fight, 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 fight. And he's like, you know how your friend's supposed to hold you back? So you can act brave, but they just like talking now. I'm holding my friend back going, I don't want to fight with you. He wants to fight. And I managed to talk my way out of the situation through just repentance. I'm so sorry. I was very insulting. Uh, uh, you're right. And, you, you, and this is what I said. You're welcome to hit me, but I'm not hitting you back. And there was a, you know, a group of people around us in the street just ready for the fight to break out. And he, he didn't. He, anyway, he got saved like a month later. 
and we surfed together. I was so embarrassed that he got radically saved. I was like, I'm so sorry. I've been a Christian my whole life. And a month ago, I so radically insulted you. Stephen didn't talk his way out of this. He didn't try. His life was just submitted to God. God, I don't trust this crowd. I don't trust the, the religious elite. I trust you, God. If this is what happens, this is what happens. I think of Robin Cheryl. Uh, they've shared the story publicly, so it's okay. Lost everything. As far as the eye can see, a valley of hills. Wealth and beauty were their lives. But through political situations, lost everything. You know, they could spend the last 20 years fighting it. There would be world governments they could go to. Instead, we trust you, Lord. Our lives were never about rolling hills and financial security. Our rest and our peace was in you, and it is in you. We trust you. That's a life full of the Spirit. We trust you. Last one is a gracious and forgiving life. So from the cross, Jesus prayed for his murderers to be forgiven. And on the ground, isn't it interesting how Stephen prays for his murderers to be forgiven? (coughs) He prays for forgiveness to overflow. Isn't it amazing? Stephen is on the ground praying, God, forgive these. And just a little bit away is Saul watching all this happen, hearing this prayer, and something begins to pierce his heart and prepare him to get radically saved. God did answer Stephen's prayer for forgiveness to wash over that crowd. And all of us are the recipients of one of those, one of those sinners that God forgave through Stephen's gracious crying out as he died. I'll wrap it up quickly because I think I've gone a bit... It's time to wrap it up. Simply put, if you, if you can't remember all the points, this is what you can remember. Life in the Spirit looks a lot like life, uh, the life of Jesus. How are you going to look as you walk with the Holy Spirit? You're going to look more and more like Jesus. That's what you're going to look like. Remember that the disciples' dream was to be with their rabbi, to... Uh, become like their rabbi, and then to do what their rabbi did. And Jesus is our rabbi, and so our dream is to be with Jesus through the Holy Spirit, to become like Jesus through the Holy Spirit, and to do what Jesus does through the Holy Spirit. So number three, as we draw us to landing, it really will be quite quick, and Cheryl's going to come and read a text soon. In order to live through our lives and face suffering, how do we face suffering empowered by the Spirit? Legalism is not going to help you. Licentiousness isn't going to help you. What you need is a, a vision of beauty and greatness. You need to see Jesus powerfully in your life. In our text, we have Stephen. He says, I see the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. He sees something that changes his response entirely or shapes his response entirely. His vision of Jesus makes the suffering inconsequential, makes his enemies so small. He can cry out, seeing this beauty and wonder of Jesus and how in control Jesus is of all things, he can pray for his enemies as they're stoning him. It's not that the suffering goes away. It's that his understanding of the beauty and wonder of Jesus far supersedes the suffering and empowers him to live in in a way that's impossible to explain. So he says he sees Jesus standing, and this could mean a few things. One, it could mean that Jesus is standing to welcome Stephen. He's the first martyr. 
Can you imagine Jesus, the Son of God, standing at the right hand of God, standing there to welcome? See, what would that do to him? I think it would bring him incredible comfort as he's suffering, knowing Jesus is going to welcome me. I see it. It could also mean that Jesus is advocating for Stephen, which with the Scriptures tell us Jesus does. That's part of his job is to be our high priest, to be our advocate, to, to argue our case for us. So Stephen sees this and he's not, you know, his faith is in Jesus. He sees Jesus advocating for him and knows that Jesus is on my side. What a sense of surety. If Jesus is for me, who can be against me? This whole crowd can do nothing. Jesus, I see him in heaven advocating for me. What it could also mean is just Jesus understanding the supremacy of Jesus' rule and power. The religious elite were kind of in the Jewish, in the, in the Jewish religion. These were like the, the people who represented God. There was God, them, you. It's like you can't go beyond them. But then Stephen sees Jesus standing at the right hand of God and goes, I have a Savior, I have a King who's beyond you. He's higher than you. His authority supersedes you. Your time is over. Your, your reign is inconsequential. Your authority is gone. It's diminished. This office you have is no more. History's changed. Jesus now is uh, the one in authority and power. So do what you want to do because I know who really reigns. What a sense of confidence. When you begin to see who Jesus is, there has to be some sort of great comfort, surety, confidence, whatever it is you might lack that begins to, to come. Not because you kept the law so well, not because you were so good at doing your own will, but because you rested in Christ alone. You trusted Christ alone. And something of His beauty and wonder, you gripped, you put your, your, your fists around it, and if you gripped onto one thing, it wasn't the law or licentiousness. You gripped onto the grace of God in Jesus Christ, and you said, I believe. And you found out He was worthy of every, every bit of that, and even more so. Cheryl, won't you come and read your, uh, the psalm that you shared this morning? And then I'll just close with a few examples. And then we'll have communion. Um, so just while we were um, singing and praising God, um, I was reminded of the psalm from a, um, Psalm 121. And um, I'll just share it with you um, as an encouragement. Um, we all know it really well. But what struck me um, was the word keep. And um, as I read it, you'll note how many times um, the word keep is mentioned in the psalm. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He'll not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade. On your right hand, the sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. So take comfort that no matter where you are or what's happening in your life, he's keeping you and he holds you. What we need is the same spirit 
that opens Stephen's eyes to the beauty and wonder of Jesus to open our eyes. Why don't you stand? And I'm going to give these statements and some of them will hit you, some of them won't. And then we'll take communion. You do not suffer because you are unworthy. If you think you suffer because you're unworthy, you do not suffer because you're unworthy. Jesus stands declaring you are worthy of all the good He gives to you. You do not suffer because you are unwanted. Jesus stands today and He calls you by name with a longing in His heart. You are wanted. You do not suffer because you're not good enough. Jesus stands and accepts you as you are. You do not suffer because you're alone. Jesus stands next to you and promises that He will never leave or forsake you. Through your suffering, you will never be alone. You do not suffer because you're incapable. Jesus stands and defends you completely. You do not suffer because you are in perpetual danger. Jesus stands and promises you an eternal safety in Him. You do not suffer because you are trapped. Jesus stands and opens the door to a wild adventure with Him. You do not suffer because you are powerless. Jesus stands as the Lord of all and gives you freedom. And you do not suffer because you don't matter. Jesus stands, He looks you in the eye and He invites you by name to Himself because you matter to Him. A clear vision of Jesus' beauty and wonder Wash all and any of our suffering as his faith as faith and grace overflow into our lives. Let's pray.